listening to the However Improbable podcast, a Sherlock Holmes book club that narrates and discusses Arthur Conan Doyle's classic tales. We're reading them in the order they occurred in the lives of the great detective and his good doctor. Holmes himself famously said that there's nothing new under the sun, but we're willing to give him a run for his money. I'm Sarah Cole. And I'm Marissa Mercurio. This week, Sherlock Holmes goes to great lengths to catch a killer and tests the patience of his landlady, his own physical strength, and the strength of his friendship with Watson. To listen to our audio adaptation of The Adventure of the Dying Detective, go back an episode. We'll be here. The Adventure of the Dying Detective is maybe the most recently written story we've covered so far. It was first published in the U.S. in 1913, and then in The Strand later that year. It's found in the short story collection His Last Bow, and yes, we admit it feels a little out of place in the early years of Holmes and Watson's partnership, but it adds some serious depth and complexity to the good adventures that we last saw them on in The Redheaded League. First, though, plot. Hmm. Watson is urgently summoned to Baker Street by Mrs. Hudson, who believes that Holmes is on his deathbed. Watson is shocked to feel the same way. His old friend is feverish, gaunt, and delirious with a mysterious fever. He refuses Watson's medical assistance and sends him to fetch Culverton Smith, an expert on Eastern diseases. When Smith shows up at Baker Street, Watson conceals himself to witness this conversation. Smith admits that Holmes's illness is his fault, and he's also responsible for the death of his own nephew, who with a really interesting name, Victor Savage. Yeah, what's his story? This, the second Victor we've seen in the canon. Mm-hmm. To everyone's surprise, Holmes, apparently seconds from death, asks for a cigarette and then <laughs> summons the police. The whole thing was a ruse to get Smith to admit his plans. Holmes apologizes profusely, more or less, and then promises to take Watson to dinner for his trouble. Before we unpack all that then, here's what our narrator Dan thought of telling the story. One of the things that drew me to this story was the really incredible dynamic between Watson and Holmes and how they really truly do care for one another as friends. So much so that throughout this whole story, you can see both of them trying to protect the other, being very protective. Holmes trying to keep Watson safe uh, from this threat and and also Watson, of course, wanting to help his friend. First of all, wanting to treat his friend, but also uh, toward the end of the story, really wanting to, you know, jump out and, and, and defend. And so that's just a really neat thing to see. I think it was also fun to watch how uh, of, of everyone in the story, Watson and, well, I guess, and Mrs. Hudson were the only ones pretty much in the dark the whole time. Uh, you know, Holmes, of course, knew what was going on. Dr. Inspector Morton, he, he knew what was going on. And, of course, you know, Culverton Smith knew what was going on. And, and so it was this, um, this, this sting operation that, that Holmes had crafted perfectly in order to catch the culprit. Uh, but also, at the same time, taking very good care of his friend Watson and making sure that he was also safe and uh, out of danger um, and also able to give a genuine report to Smith to get him to come. So I, I perfectly crafted story in a very short amount of time, really beautifully put together, and I enjoyed every bit of it. And uh, I had a lot of fun. So thanks. So Sarah, what did you think of this story? It is a fascinating one. There is so much to say about it, and I don't even know where to begin. Weird. It's definitely weird. <laughs> and also, 
heart-wrenching. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm really glad, even though it, it does throw a spanner in our chronology, I'm really glad we're talking about it now and not later on. Definitely agree on that. It would be wretched for Holmes to do this <sighs> post-Empty House. Heh. Thank goodness it happens now. I think yes. this story is a complete delight. I love this story. <laughs> I haven't read it in a while, but I recall it being one of my favorites. And upon rereading it, I was like, yes, this is definitely one of my favorites. I just, I think it's such a pleasure to read. It's absolutely bonkers. I love the dramatics. I love the theatrics. I love the Holmes and Watson friendship of it all. Uh, There's some things I don't like about it, which we'll get into. (laughs) Overall, I think it's a really fun and ridiculous romp. Even though there's really no uh, crime solving happening. Not something I would classify as a murder mystery because a murder does take place but you don't really know that it's Mm -hmm. going on until Holmes kind of tells the story but it's certainly a mystery and the mystery is figuring out what the hell is going on with Sherlock Holmes. Right. This strikes me more as a a chapter in Watson's memoirs Mm. of Holmes rather than here's a here's a story to show you Holmes's incredible deductive capabilities but rather here was a particularly horrid Wednesday in which I endured (laughs) this ruse And I'm going to tell you about it. That's so real. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense, particularly thinking this is a story that Doyle wrote much later than than a lot of the ones that we've been reading. And it makes sense as something that Watson's sort of looking back on. Hey, let me tell you the time that Sherlock Holmes really pulled one over on me. What Mm -hmm. do you guys think about that? Versus working to show off his detective prowess to help his business or whatever. And I'm really excited to talk about all of the new characters and... Mm-hmm. characteristics that we learn um, about the characters that we're already familiar with. Before we get into that, I did want to note that this story takes place on a foggy November day, which is very oh. appropriate. Yeah, it's kind of a foggy November day right now when mm-hmm. we're recording this. Yeah, so same here. Suited. Mrs. Hudson? Mrs. Hudson. Yes! Finally. This is so exciting. Every story I open and I'm like, where is she? And she hasn't come up yet. And mm-hmm. here she plays a really substantial role. Yes. She's not even just dropped as the landlady. She is, is is very much involved in what happens, and I love her. I adore her. So much. In a previous story, we heard about the quote-unquote landlady, but I think this mm-hmm. is the first time that she's been named. And I feel like we learn a fair amount about her and about how she relates to Holmes and Holmes and Watson. There's, I mean, she doesn't do a ton. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have a ton of dialogue, but Watson is very reflective. Yes, it's a great dynamic between the three of them, I think. Watson describes her as long-suffering because of Holmes's work, because he's got, you know, steady streams of, quote, throngs of singular and often undesirable characters coming in and out of Baker Street (laughs) all the time, but then also because of his own personality and the way that Mm -hmm. he functions as a tenant. Right. You get this really wonderful quote that's, I think, just like a nice little capsule description Mm -hmm. of Holmes and his behavior, which is... His, quote, incredible untidiness, his addiction to music at strange hours, his occasional revolver practice within doors, his weird and often malodorous scientific experiments, and the atmosphere of violence and danger which hung around him. That's just, ugh. I love that <laughs> That's my man. That's my man. That's my yeah. weird little man. That's everything that we love about him right mm-hmm. there. And I'm sure makes him a terrible renter. Yes, well, Watson caps this off by calling him the very worst tenant in London. Yeah. We learned that his payments were princely. Maybe we've mentioned this on the, po- the podcast before. Mm. There's this theory that 
Holmes probably pays a lot more rent than Watson does to sort of make up for all of this. And I think this is sort of evidence that that's true. Smoothing Mrs. Hudson over by mm-hmm. making sure that she's well paid to put up with him. Yes. And when Watson comments about Baker Street would have been bought cheaper than the amount of rent that Holmes ends up paying. And Holmes is fond of Mrs. Hudson as well. I mean, we learn as Watson says that she is fond of him. This dis- nice description of him is a sort of malodorous, stinky scientist living <laughs> upstairs in her house where she's like, oh my god. But then we find out that he has, she's really very fond of him. Mm-hmm. And what Watson said, he has this gentleness and courtesy in his dealings with women and with her. He's really sweet to her. He turns on the charm, helps her feel good about the things that are happening in her rented rooms. <laughs> right, smooths things over. Yes. I think this is maybe partially where we get in a lot of adaptations, the more motherly instincts mm-hmm. Mrs. Hudson has towards Holmes. And I always think that's very sweet. I like it. There's a lot of bickering between them as... It's very maternal, but it's not without Mrs. Hudson's landlady duties <laughs> as well. Yeah. So, I yeah, I really like this relationship. I'm looking forward to having Mrs. Hudson, hopefully, in more stories soon. It's, it's nice to meet her properly, finally, after all of this finally. time. Finally. It's also nice to see her dynamic with Watson. It suggests to me that Mrs. Hudson really trusts Watson and mm-hmm. that... She knows Holmes will only listen to Watson if he's not going to listen to anybody else. Holmes, I mean, she thinks Holmes is, like, on his deathbed, and Holmes Mm -hmm. is insisting that no doctor be present, and he won't put up with it, but she kind of goes behind his back and goes to get Watson anyway. Of course, I think is exactly what Holmes wants her to do. Rather than asking, you know, he's not like, go get my dear friend Watson, he sort of connives to get her to to do this, to make it seem really dire. It's something, really something, Holmes. I think if this were a realistic situation in that Holmes were actually dying, it would be stunning to me that Mrs. Hudson doesn't actually go tell Watson sooner. I mean, imagine being Watson, right? You're just going about your business every day, and you find out your friend, your best friend, is on his deathbed. It has been, I think, for three days is what Mrs. Hudson says, that he has been bedridden and getting worse Mm -hmm. and hasn't eaten for three days. Or in the beginnings of the story, we do also learn some particulars about some spaces in Baker Street and some more of Holmes' characteristics that we haven't prior to this. We enter Holmes' bedroom for the first time. Like it's a kind of a private space, but here we are in this moment of vulnerability. And what do we learn about it? Oh my goodness, so much. It's very, (laughs) in some ways, similar to the rest of Baker Street. I think Holmes' personality is really just spread throughout the entirety mm-hmm. of Baker Street, which really makes me want to enter Watson's bedroom and see what that's like in contrast to the rest of Baker Street, because I have the sense that Watson sort of just, like, puts up with the rest, <laughs> you know, the living rooms of Baker Street. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Holmes is pervasive throughout here. It's fine. Who cares? I'm a military man. I just need, you know... My toothbrush and a razor, and I'm good. <laughs> what, his toothbrush and his revolver? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Holmes has pictures of celebrated criminals hanging up on all the walls of his bedroom. I love this detail so much because it's so weird. It's so wacky. What a little freak. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's like got a, it's like a Jeffrey Dahmer on his bedroom wall. Mm-hmm. I don't have pictures of boy bands. I have pictures of celebrated criminals. Yeah. Very edgy, Everyone's a celebrity (laughs) in some way. 
I like the word debris. So Watson describes this, a litter of pipes, tobacco pouches, syringes, pen knives, revolver cartridges, another debris was scattered around his room. He's a messy man. Just tosses things. Maybe he's like inspired to clean up in the living room, but in his bedroom, he's kind of just like break a brack everywhere. Right. No Watson, no Mrs. Hudson to control Mm -hmm. him into tidying up. So he's dropping his cigarette butts on his dirty laundry. Something we learn later about Holmes towards the end of the story, and I think this is perhaps the first instance of a description of his voice, we learn that Holmes has a, quote, high, thin voice, which is not contingent on his sickness. It's sort of clear to me within the space of the text that this is his regular voice. Yeah, and I I like that because I think it maybe contrasts the way that we think of Holmes in some ways. It's this type of, well, not us personally, but, um, you know, post-Basil Rathbone adaptations as this very hyper-masculine man. And he's also working on another monograph. Oh my god. (laughs) Another one. Of course, only in his head. This one's not written down either. Mm -mm. On malingering. So. (laughs) Whatever that means. That one's even more vague than typewriters. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of how Watson describes Holmes's personality and his his bearing in the story is and this happens a couple times. He uses this word masterful mm-hmm. in context of the way he's carrying himself and how he's speaking and how even though he's he's like looks gaunt and thin and horrible and, and sounds like he's dying, he's still bossing everybody around and commanding Watson, don't do this. So he sort of still has this command of the situation, even though Watson thinks he's really about to drop dead. Yeah, and I think this is um, really interesting in part perhaps, of his theatrical abilities. He's masterful in his own right, but he's also this master of acting. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's very compelling because obviously everyone does do what he says. He doesn't break in spinning this lie. That's, of course, the plot twist is that he is not actually dying. He's just starving himself and and has done a lot of research to make it look like he has the same illness that mm-hmm. killed this guy, guy, Victor, to Watson's great surprise, but he's able to fool Watson and doesn't let anything slip. To, so Mrs. Hudson or Watson are suspicious through all of this. So we, we're seeing his love of committing to dramatics pushed a little over the top in this case. Really commits to the bit in yeah. this one. He doesn't, doesn't method acting for three days. <laughs> yeah. 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 Speaking of which... Do you want to talk about the illness itself? Yes, because it's kind of secondary to the plot, where Mm -hmm. it kind of just tangentially kills this guy. But I think there's a lot to say about it, and and it explains why the story is all great, but also kind of problematic. Yeah, this is where I would criticize the story. Because it's not Arthur Conan Doyle, unless it's got some casual racism just right a little, in. or in this case, a, a very strong undercurrent running underneath the plot. It's incredibly typical of all yeah. these stories where you Absolutely. could tell the story without it being racist, but no. 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 <laughs> no. Um, Somebody else could. Yeah, Not I mean, him, I though. think it would be very easy to do an adaptation of this where this isn't an issue whatsoever. Yeah, yeah it could be anything. It could be tetanus. Right, yeah could be anything. It could be something made up and it wouldn't matter. Right. But it's not. It is a quote-unquote eastern disease. Right. So what Holmes says to Watson is that it is a 
coolie disease from Sumatra, a thing that the Dutch know more about than we. This is, of course, because the Dutch colonized Sumatra and mm-hmm. Indonesia more broadly in the early 19th century, perhaps 18th century as well. Indonesia was known as the Dutch East Indies. The Dutch used Indonesia as an outpost for the Dutch East India Company, which was formally dissolved in 1800. Its colonial possessions in the Indonesian archipelago, including parts of Sumatra, were nationalized under the Dutch Republic as the Dutch East Indies. Other things that we learn about this disease is that it's supposedly very contagious by touch, which I don't really know how that works. So it's like a rash? I, I think this is maybe Holmes <laughs> he, overblowing I mean, he's it. He's inventing an yes. excuse mm-hmm. to not have Watson examine him. Right. So there's part of that in there. So I don't know if people would actually believe this of okay. this disease in the 19th century or if it's Holmes saying like, whoa, stand back, Watson. And the way that we learn that Holmes thinks he got it or says he thinks he got it, because of course he's lying about everything, is that... He received it from his interactions with Chinese sailors in the East End. He says, quote, There are many oh. problems of disease, many strange pathological possibilities in the East, Watson. As we said, it's very problematic, but it's also a very rich vein if we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, the historical and literary contexts here. In the 19th century, there is a collapse of the East End with the global East. Oh, interesting. In the 19th century, especially in the late 19th century, the East End and the West End were mapped very differently, and they were sort of dichotomous in the attributes that they were given. So Judith Walkowitz talks about the East End in her monograph, City of Dreadful Delight, Narratives of Sexual Danger in Late Victorian London, which is really great, but more focused on sexual danger and women. But there is... Mm -hmm some exploration here that I think is useful for some context that we are dealing with in the story. She writes that, quote, most of the explicit anxieties and attention focused on the East End, a symbol of the social unrest born of urban degeneracy. Essentially that, you know, the the East End of London is associated with the foreign and degeneration and the poor and all these things get collapsed into one another and sexual danger as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, whereas the west end is more bourgeois it's more english it's more quote-unquote pure it's significant that Holmes goes to the East End to pick up this disease. And then the last thing I wanted to say about some research that I did on this disease, because I was really curious if this, what Holmes calls the disease that he supposedly has is the Tapanuli fever and the Black Mm. Formosa corruption. And I was like, is that a real thing? Yeah. I don't know. And I'm still not certain because <laughs> when I, I, I did some very brief research on this and a lot of what came up was in association with The Adventure of the Dying Detective. Sure. Yeah. However, I did come across an article called Sherlock Holmes and a Biological Weapon by oh. C2K Vora, who tries to nail down what disease exactly threatens Holmes's life. This was really interesting. I think it was in a medical journal as opposed to a humanities journal. Wow. So cool. 
yeah. So really interesting crossover, um, mm-hmm. some interdisciplinary crossover. And the author essentially concludes that it may be, let's see if I can pronounce this, melioidosis. Sure, we'll go with that. Um, Vora also notes that the Center of Disease Control and Prevention have identified it as a, quote, potential agent for bioterrorism, which is essentially what you see in the story. Yeah, totally. Right? So it's so yeah, interesting. It's, like a, it's functionally a murder weapon in this story. Right. So uh, it, this article is out there, and it's really short if people want to read it. It's like four yeah. pages long, and it's essentially this author trying to take the characteristics of the disease that Holmes has in the story and mm-hmm. try to take the symptoms and be like, well, it could be this disease, it could be this one, and then eventually settles on melioidosis. Well, it's so interesting to me because, like, Doyle was a doctor. Right! <laughs> Great So point. why did he... I mean, it seems like he was thinking of some sort of real illness or mm-hmm. he's basing this in a real illness. But then gave it a fake name? I don't know. Question mark? That seems to be what's happened here, but hard to say. Yeah, I would love to know if anyone knows anything more about this. Yeah. If they could email us. Because, I again, like, I could have spent probably several hours going down a rabbit hole of research, but I was like... Mm-hmm. But, like, if the, if the top couple results are just this story and people talking about this story, I think that's a sign that it's not a common turn of phrase that is used elsewhere, so... Right, and my assumption is that it could be something like, you know, we don't call tuberculosis consumption anymore, but that's what they meant. So it might be something like that, where the word for it has just changed, yeah. And then, of course, like, I don't think this has anything to do with the actual disease, but Holmes's delirium is so delightful. Like, the whole oysters and the... really funny. And balancing Watson with his money in his pockets. (laughs) It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Particularly because you have to think... I mean, he's probably hallucinating a little because he hasn't eaten in a couple days. (laughs) But also, he is acting what he thinks delirium would look like, which is even funnier. I think the point of everything that you just laid out is that... The foundational plot of the story is super racist. Yeah. And it's just like, of course, we just keep coming back to this, like, danger of less civilized places infecting good British people. But that's what's happening here. Right. Yeah, totally. And I think when we get to talking about Culverton Smith specifically, it's very similar in the way that Grimsby Roylott, you know, perhaps originated as a fine, upstanding Englishman, then goes abroad and then comes back and brings back disease and degeneration and moral <laughs> corruption. <laughs> Degradation. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on. I think before we start to talk about, because the real meat of the story is everything that Holmes and Watson say to each other. But I do want to talk a little bit about this villain, because I think he's interesting for a couple of reasons. And I feel like he's building on a couple of villains that we've seen and also is sort of another Moriarty prototype in some ways. Um, I mean, he has this really metal line where he says to Holmes, you are very near your end, Holmes. I will sit here and watch you die. Kick ass. There was another line. I wish I had written it down. I didn't. Where I read something that he said and I was like, that's sexy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I wish I knew what it was. It was such a a horrid, like... Yeah, like, mm, he has some good, just, like, evil thing. 
<laughs> dialogue. So yeah. my first point about him is that he is is about his looks. He's not sexy. Watson has a very <laughs> classic sort of Watsonian description of him, mm-hmm. and it, it, it put Grimsby Roy Lott in mind. Grimsby, yeah. Grimsby in mind <laughs> for go. me because he has such a vivid description with the sideburns and the big florid face and mm-hmm. then boy voice and stuff. So what? How Watson describes this guy because Watson goes to to meet him in his office and asks him to help Holmes and is kind of like why am I asking this horrible person for help so Watson says quote I saw a great yellow face coarse grained and greasy with heavy double chin and two sullen menacing gray eyes which glared at me from under tufted and sandy brows (laughs) so that's a very distinctive it is visage the yellow face bit makes me incredibly uncomfortable within the context of everything else that is going on in the story. Yeah, I've, it, that's a red flag. Along with all of the other red flags <laughs> yeah. that have popped up so far, um, a couple other keynotes that Watson uses to describe Culverton Smith is he has a high screaming voice all and right. a malicious and abominable smile. So he's just like this huge, ugly, greasy man who <laughs> screams <laughs> at you. Oh no. And he's a doctor? And he's a doctor, and he has a really good reputation. I think Watson is clearly, like, probably dramatizing this after the mm-hmm. fact remembering this guy, but uh, he that's a frightening picture in my head. Yeah, absolutely. I would not want this guy on my deathbed. No. And also one of those characters that y- you meet and you're like, yeah, this guy's going to be the villain. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Watson calls his smile abominable. <laughs> of course he did it. When Watson shows up, he tells him that Holmes is ill mm-hmm. and Watson writes that he catches a glimpse of his face in the mirror over the mantelpiece and he says I could have sworn that it was set in a malicious and abominable smile which is what you, you just go. pulled from but I love that oh even better I love that image of Watson seeing this reflection of this man it's very Jekyll and Hyde oh yeah totally and then he's like, yes. oh, no, I must have imagined it. Well, I think he's he's desperate. You know, he's really mm-hmm. worried. Yeah, and absolutely. told him this is the only guy who can help him. Yeah, so it's also similar to Grimsby Roylott. Here's another evil doctor. I love an evil doctor. I really do. I think it really works in the story. He's mm. really sinister. He is. And it's such a great murder plot, right? That you're going to gift someone this little box that has a thorn in it that pricks your finger and on that prick there's a like a disease yeah and then infects infects your system yeah i mean it's sort of like a perfect crime so i really like props to holmes for figuring out how this happened oh there's this note you put in a note here that he owns a plantation in sumatra yes holmes explains to watson that the reason that he knows so much about eastern diseases is because culverton smith had a plantation in sumatra and i believe that a disease ravaged the people on that plantation. Oh, okay. And that is why Smith got interested in, quote-unquote, yeah. tropical diseases. So, bad all around. This is building on the conversation we were talking about, our, our bank robber guy, mm-hmm. um, who is perhaps a flashier villain, but villainous in a different way. And also yes. Grimsby Boyerlot is, he is like again does the thing where he compares himself to Holmes mm-hmm. and compares their intellect and makes mm-hmm. this analogy which I think it's also a really nice sentence so when Watson is is talking to him for the first time he says 
I only know Mr. Holmes through some business dealings which we have had, but I have every respect for his talents and his character. He is an amateur of crime, as I am of disease. For him, the villain. For me, the microbe. Oh, great line. So again, a great position between the two of them. A lovely sentence there. A nice bit of writing from Doyle. So we've seen this come up a couple times where these villains, clearly he wants to get Holmes out of the way, and he's kind of sick. He sends Holmes this box to kill him. He's sick and tired of Holmes thrashing his reputation and (laughs) ruining what he's trying to pull off here, which is get away with murdering his Mm -hmm. nephew for some reason. Yeah, what's Um, going on with that? We don't know at all. It is not explained. There is no detail, which is a bit of a bummer. Victor Savage, too. Like, ooh, what's his deal? Is he a pirate? (laughs) Yeah. Is that a real name? (laughs) Or no? (laughs) Victor Savage? Um, But yeah, I think the point is that these villainous people are recognizing Holmes as sort of a worthy adversary that they have admiration for, even as they see him as a threat. And that I love it. I love that it happens with lots of people. (laughs) But Holmes only really has the one. So there are all of these villains out there, like, dreaming of besting Sherlock Holmes. And then Holmes is just like... Who's your dream arch nemesis? (laughs) He's tall and he's gaunt and he's a professor of mathematics. (laughs) (laughs) Who would your dream arch nemesis be? No, I really like it, and I think it comes to fruition later on when Holmes mm-hmm. himself dabbles in the criminal. Even if Holmes doesn't see Smith specifically as an equal, then there, but there's there's still this conflation between Holmes and many criminals, and I, I like mm-hmm. playing with that. I think there's a lot of interest in the collapse of the detective and the criminal and where those boundaries lie and what justice is, as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. In, you know, many of the stories before where Holmes does some of, he does some um, extrajudicial, <laughs> you know, justice on his own. Yeah. He is at his most interesting, and he's interesting to me all the time, but he's at his most interesting when he is crossing the border between being a hero and being an anti-hero. Which is why he's a consulting detective, and why he can get away with that, and I think why we as readers feel he can get away with it, is because he's not a cop. It'd be gross if he were a cop, right? Like, the stories would not be good if he were a cop doing this. And so much of what makes him compelling would be totally flat. Yeah, totally. If that wasn't there, so. I love it. Every time it happens, it's good here. I'm like, ooh, what's been going on? And there's this whole, like... Like, Watson obviously steps into the denouement of the situation, but there's this whole building thing where Culverton Smith is sick of Holmes sort of thrashing his reputation in public because Holmes is trying to discredit him because he's suspicious that he has killed his nephew. Um, So clearly Holmes has been, like, digging around and stuff and getting into trouble and making this guy mad, and he comes to, like, his only recourse is to kill him. There's a lot of great nuggets of background context that aren't provided and in some ways I really like that I like when stories don't feel the need to explain everything and that they just can live and breathe on their own yeah in this case I think it works really well yeah because it it doesn't have to we don't have to see it play out we can kind of imagine it because he gets to the point where not only does he want to kill Holmes but he wants him to like suffer wants to be present to watch him die which is very personal he's not just willing to like like, it could have just stuck the thing in the mail and then gone on holiday and come back a couple weeks later and had not had an issue. But he had to watch this happen. And that's how he gets caught. Yeah, good villain. Another really good villain after Redheaded League. I want to know why he murdered his nephew. I do too. What did his nephew do? Ugh. 
That's like a, a material rife for area for fanfic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think all we have left now is to talk about the meat of the story, which is, of course, Holmes and Watson's friendship. Holmes could not have pulled this off without it. Where to even begin? It's a lot. It's it was This was overwhelming for me to read. It was for me as well. And as I said, I haven't read the story in a couple of years, and I was simply unprepared for the, frankly, romance of it all. It is so sweet. It is so tender. Holmes is so horrid, but then it turns out so well. And there are such genuine moments of care and concern because I think the stakes from Watson's perspective are so high. Yeah, this is like the worst thing he can imagine happening. Mm -hmm. That's happening all of a sudden, very quickly, right in front of his eyes, and he's desperate. Watson has to struggle against his own medical instincts. It's just like so full of emotion from every single character. It's so good. And I think even from Holmes's end, even though his illness is a ruse, he, he's showing some genuine emotion towards Watson. And there's this one moment towards the beginning of the story, or towards the beginning of Watson's arrival at Baker Street, when Holmes insists that Watson, you know, back up and stay away and do what he says. And Holmes says, you were not angry, he asked, gasping for breath. And I don't read this as insincere. Like, I think this is legit. I think this oh, is yeah. a moment of Holmes genuinely wanting to ensure that he is not angered his friend. Like, in order to stop Watson from becoming Dr. Watson in this scenario, mm-hmm. he has to insult his medical capabilities. Oh, man. He's really not very nice. So he says, you're only a general practitioner with very limited experience and mediocre qualifications. And Watson tells us that he's bitterly hurt. Yeah, this is a rough moment. It sets up a really good payback at the end. I don't know. I feel like we get rewarded by the end of the story mm-hmm. through this moment, through this interaction. That's a good way to put it. Because at the end, we recall this moment again where Holmes says, Can you ask, my dear Watson, do you imagine that I have no respect for your medical talents? Could I fancy that your astute judgment would pass a dying man who, however weak, had no rise of pulse or temperature at four yards I could deceive you? So in the end, he's really complimenting Watson. And I love the beginning of that line where he says, Can you ask, my dear Watson? Like, do you even have to ask? Like, don't you know? Don't you know? I really tricked you. I really did, even though I needed to. I think that something at the heart of the story, specifically at the relationship, the unspoken nature of their friendship, the unspoken degree of respect and love that they have for one another, where they really both have to reassure each other that they do care as much as they hope that they do. Holmes having to say, like, do you even have to ask? You know, just like, because they don't talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. They don't really talk about their devotion to each other, Mm-mm. but I think it's assumed. This is one of those moments, and there are a handful in the series, um, one of those moments where the veil is sort of pulled between their established ways of behaving in a moment of stress or tension or fear, and it reveals quite clearly to both of both of them and to the audience how they feel about each other and how much they care about each other and how meaningful this friendship, how much trust they have in each other, I think is also a thread in, in this dynamic. Um, 
And when those moments happen, they're kind of few and far between. And whenever they do, they're so good and so tender. Even when he's being such an abominable, awful person. (laughs) And if he was someone who Watson cared about less or who was less extraordinary or there was something different about this dynamic, Watson would have been like, well, I don't think I need to talk to you for a while. (laughs) That was awful. But that doesn't happen. No, um, Watson seemingly totally forgives Holmes by the end. Then I like pack it up and go out to dinner afterwards. Right. Because uh, Holmes really needs to eat a meal. Yeah, Holmes needs to eat a meal. And he's like, let me repay you for all that. I'll take you out to dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry about um, that. Like, it, I think if Watson had not truly seen that moment, maybe it would have shaken out slightly differently and he would have, wouldn't have been quite so generous. And I think from Watson's perspective, too, he is just desperate to help mm-hmm. Holmes. There's a great moment when he arrives at Smith's place where he tells the butler there that, hey, I'm arrived. Can I please speak to Smith? And the butler's like, no, nah, he's busy. And Watson just pushes past the butler to demand oh, that yeah, yeah. Smith help Holmes. He's yeah. like, I'm not going to just stand here. <laughs> yeah, that there's that Watson man of action yes. coming out. And of course, there's there's two really are, good lines. I'm working up yeah. to like bringing myself to be able to read this because it is just such a sentence. And it's Watson comes back. He tells Holmes, all right, Colferton Smith's on his way. Holmes is like, well, you got to get out of here. Well, actually, no, no. Go hide so you can watch this happen. But he mm-hmm. doesn't phrase it that way. What he says is, suddenly he sat up with a rigid intentness upon his haggard face. Nice description. There are the wheels, Watson. Quick man, if you love me. And don't budge. Whatever happens, whatever happens, do you hear? Quick man, if you love me. That's what he had to say. And that's what Watson needed to hear. To It's a sentiment similar to, like, I swear on my mother's grave. What is the thing that you put the most stock in to swear upon mm-hmm. or to show that you were being truthful or legit? You know, that yeah. you were really meaning what you were about to mean. And in this yeah. case, it's Watson's love for Holmes. My other favorite moment is when Holmes is giving all of his directions to Watson to get Smith and to then say that, oh, I have an appointment and take a separate carriage to return to Baker Street. Also, Holmes is, you know, right, can finally reveal his little plot. But what he says at the end of his directions to Watson is, you won't fail me. You never did fail me. That's it. That's their dynamic. The degree to which... Holmes depends on Watson is really brought to the forefront in this story. It's absolutely is what it makes it so special. It's really telling about how well Holmes knows Watson and also Mrs. Hudson. That's a little less obvious, but he he's able to set all of this sort of his sort of convoluted plan where I feel like there's probably a lot more obvious way to make this happen. <laughs> yeah, probably. But all of a sudden Watson's involved. Gotta do it for the drama. People. And yeah, he's got to do it for the drama. He's got to have his moment where he can sit up with his normal voice and say, can I have a cigarette? While Watson is also going mm. to shock and gasp and awe, because that's, of course, what right. Holmes lives for, is the moment where that happens. He's able to get all of this happen because he knows how Watson is going to respond, what his emotional response is going to be and the lengths he's going to go through to make sure that what Holmes is asking for plays out the way that he wants it to. And particularly, he has this this trait of Watson's, which is his guilelessness. Which is something I really love about Watson. His face is a mirror. He just mm-hmm. shows everything that he feels. Wears his heart on his sleeve. So what Holmes says in this case, and basically why he lies and why he couldn't let Watson in on any of this happening and really had to make him think 
that Holmes was dying, which was probably fairly traumatizing. Um, he says, you won't be offended, Watson. You will realize that among your many talents, dissimulation finds no place, and that if you had shared my secret, you would have never been able to impress Smith with the urgent necessity of his presence. That's such a good sentiment for two reasons. One is, like you said, Holmes knows Watson so well that he can assume like if I if I tell Watson if I let him in on the secret then he's just gonna give away the plot yeah that'll be that Holmes relying on Watson to do Mm. the utmost to save Holmes's life if he is able to convince Watson of how serious this is then Watson will do what he has to be done and I like this note that you've added that it's an important detail that will hurt us later (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're gonna come back around to this story in a while I'm really excited about this because I think it does do a good job in terms of the chronology, despite it being kind of messy, of preparing us for later events and the way that characters will react to those events and perhaps the way that we can assume characters react to the events, because it's not always directly on the page. This is a really interesting character building story for both Mm. Holmes and Watson in what's going on between them, I think. And a little, like, I opened up the story and I was reading and it has some, like, two years after the date of my marriage. Watson's clearly not living in Baker Street Mm because Mrs. Hudson has to go get him. Mm -hmm. And none of this would have worked if he had been because he would have, like, picked up on the fact that Holmes was starving himself. (laughs) Yeah. And been like, what is going on? So I I started and I was a little frustrated thinking, we're, like, back on um, our chronology friend's theory about there being a first wife, I think, is why he placed this so early. However, I think if you take that line out, emotionally it really resonates and it works for me so well because it's coming after the Redheaded League, which as we talked about is like this great high. Like it's them at the top of their game and their dynamic at the top of where it's going to be. And then Holmes kind of goes and pulls this and we see not only their crime solving heights, but also like the height of their care and, and Watson's trust in Holmes and vice versa even when Holmes is being arguably kind of shady. That's a really great point that it's coming after this pinnacle of their friendship where we see how Mm -hmm. close they are, we see how good of friends they are, that this emotionally makes sense to come after that, where maybe we wouldn't buy the devotion if it had come earlier. It would have been a little out of place Mm -hmm. if it had come earlier. And I think if we had stuck it after Watson's marriage, I think it also could have worked. Yeah, I think it could definitely work post sign of four, but not yeah. post empty house. That would be awful. It would for just be it would be talk about, but it would be so too mean. bad. Yeah, it yeah. would it would be almost unforgivable. It would be unforgivable almost. Yeah. Like here, it's not mean yet. It's perhaps a very complicated way to accomplish something that could have been accomplished in another sense. Um. Holmes certainly owes some apologies to Watson after the fact because it was probably very stressful. Oh, yeah. However, if it had happened after certain things happened, it would have just been, you know, it would have been like one of those things where you're like, I can never like you again. I don't think Conan Doyle would have given this a second thought. So I'm glad that it shook out coincidentally. Because he, I mean, he's just throwing darts at a dartboard in terms of when things take place. <laughs> yeah, literally. So Obsessed with these other doctors that Watson recommends named Sir Jasper Meek and Penrose Fisher. What great names. Ooh. I have no thoughts about Penrose them except Fisher. for the good names. Doyle has a way with names. He always does. And they're always weird little characters like 
Penrose Fisher, mm. Victor Savage. It's delightful. That is that is my criticism of this story. If I had to change one thing, I want to know more about why, like what drove Culverton Smith to be a murderer in the first place mm-hmm. and what that situation was. I think it works without it, but I am curious. I want to know. My conclusions with the story is that it is such a rich story, despite very little happening. And it possibly one of my favorites like i think Mm. so far of all the stories we've read this has definitely been one of the most delightful to me and the one that was such a page turner you feel the tension you're on the edge of your seat to understand what happens Mm -hmm. and where it's gonna go particularly i can't imagine reading this story for the first time no i i I can't recall recall. reading this story for the first time it must have been when i read all the others but if you're a reader reading it in 1913. It's a little tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. That's funny. Oh, in a way that I think yes, is funny. That is Where it's like, are funny. you really... You're not going to fool me again, Doyle. <laughs> and even the name is a little tongue-in-cheek. I would like to double feature The Adventurer of the Dying Detective with the three Gerdebs. <gasps> like, okay. the way you contrast those. In thinking about stories where that veil high is pulled and you see and, yes. high stakes and you see Holmes's real emotional heart, like three guards mm-hmm. is the story that I think And of. who is in danger is different in each one. And yeah, I think you could get a lot of richness out of comparing and contrasting those two stories Oof. back to back. Oof. Oof. Adaptations. First off, is the Granada adaptation, which is, it was made in 1994, so it's toward the end of the series. They give the original story some more depth. They give the dead nephew a backstory. And then Watson, like, jumps in to stop Culverton Smith from killing himself. Hmm. Rather than just having him sort of just get arrested by the police and packed off, he intervenes to stop him from pricking his own finger with, like, the tack inside of the box. So that's an interesting added dimension way there. to go. Terrible way to die giving yourself a horrible wasting disease. No thanks. This episode, it's not one. I didn't rewatch it for this. It's, I find it to be a hard one to watch because it's later in the series and Jeremy Brett's health is really poor. Yeah, I have a hard time watching the later episodes to the degree where I have not seen some of them because it just, it makes me too sad. I think there is something kind of interesting about where chronologically it happens towards the end of their friendship in the Granada setup, much later than obviously where we are now. And there's something interesting about it taking place there, not only post Final Problem Empty House, but as when they're much older men. And there's some sense of like mortality and frailty that's built into that, that I think that's is compelling. kind of compelling. Mm-hmm. But it also, it, it makes me sad. Right. This is a <laughs> hard swerve. Sorry yeah. to like hard change topics here. Um, <laughs> the next person group who did this adaptation is our friends Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century and I only picked this one because I like the title but they called it the adventure of the deranged detective that's pretty good because he sort of hallucinates and gets delirious and stuff and then elementary in the first season in episode nine where he gets sick and it hampers his ability to like go out and solve crime and so Joan Watson has to like help him out with that Mm -hmm. I don't remember the specifics of the case but that's a little callback to this and then I haven't seen these episodes because I haven't watched all of BBC Sherlock, but Culverton Smith is a prominent villain in some of their later episodes. He's played by Toby Jones. In 
this. He is a wealthy philanthropist who, like, builds a hospital and he sneaks into hospital rooms to serially murder people. Hmm. I have not seen this either. (laughs) I don't know nothing more about it other than he's a serial hospital murderer with, like, a secret room where he can get into this hospital room to poison people or something. That's what I got in terms of adaptations. Do you have any read-alikes or pastiches? That yeah, I, I do. Um, I was really struggling trying to think of a novel or a movie in which someone fakes an illness. And then I was like, well, you know what? He's not faking an illness, but this is really giving me 7% solution vibes by mm. Nicholas Meyer, the 1974 mm-hmm. pastiche. Have you ever read this? I have not. It's also a movie which I just watched for the first time. I think we definitely have to do an episode on this book slash movie. The movie is bonkers. Yeah, it has an interesting cast you were telling me about. Oh my god. First of all, the guy who plays Holmes is blonde and has blue eyes, which, like, I could not get over. Mm. If you cast, like, a black actor or an Asian actor as Holmes, I would be like, go for it. But for some reason, having him being blonde and blue-eyed was just like, no. I was like, no. This is too weird. (laughs) Um, Robert Duvall plays Watson, which was extremely weird to me. Alan Arkin plays Freud. Do you know anything about the premise of The Seven Prisons? (laughs) Oh, my God. I cannot (laughs) wait for you to watch this movie. I know nothing about it at all, other than that it's famous. <laughs> oh my god, okay. Clearly Freud is in it. Yeah. <laughs> the most I've ever liked Freud is because he's played by young Alan Arkin, who was very attractive. <laughs> this was the first pastiche of Sherlock Holmes I had ever read. Okay. I recall very clearly being in a secondhand bookshop off of Boys Town in Chicago Having already read all of the Sherlock Holmes stories was just perusing Holmes material. And I picked this book up and the guy at the counter was like, he's like, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle didn't write this, right? And I was like, yep. Thank you. And yes, the basic <laughs> premise, and there was my introduction to pastiches. The basic oh, premise is that Holmes is highly addicted to cocaine mm-hmm. and Watson and Mycroft are determined to get him to kick the habit, and they resolve that the only person who could possibly do this is Sigmund Freud. So they trick him into going to Austria, and I think they're in Austria. They trick him, essentially, to go abroad and to meet with Freud, who does hypnosis to help cure Holmes' addiction, and there's also this mystery plot going on. It's very bizarre. Moriarty is just like a figment of Holmes's imagination, essentially, because of oh his cocaine addiction. Oh boy, it's it's a lot. the 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 first half of the book is really all about Holmes and his addiction, and painted as you know a, an illness, a, a disease mm-hmm, that he mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. Um, trying to recover from. He's not faking an illness; like this is a real issue that he's contending with in the story. But it does sort of call back a lot of The Dying Detective, and I would not be surprised if Nicholas Meyer, the author of this pastiche, heavily borrowed from yeah. Dying Detective to the degree where there's, like, hallucinations and things, which are really just uh, emphasized in the movie, and they're completely wild. 
We definitely well, have, to have to do an episode it, on it. And we can just, talk about it. Because I have, I mean, I've heard the name a hundred billion times and just have never gotten around to it. Yeah. What's interesting about the 7% solution is how influential it has been. Because mm-hmm. I don't think you would necessarily have had later adaptations where Holmes is a little bit more, I don't know if neurotic is the right word, but a little bit more fidgety and anxious and um, definitely the ones that deal with his addiction or at least his drug use without the 7% solution. Because that really, I think, popularized the idea of Holmes as an addict. So in some ways, we can thank the 7% solution for elementary. But there you go. If you want some real, legit Holmes suffering, <laughs> go to the 7% Holmes solution. Holmes suffering, Watson worrying. That sounds... Freud is also there. I did not have any concept that Freud was involved in any way in that book. <laughs> Big time. Like, he helps them solve the mystery, and it culminates in, like, Holmes having this sword fight with these people on top, this guy on top of a moving train. (laughs) Of course it does. That sounds great. I'm into that part. It, it, like, veers into not good often. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, extraordinarily not good. People should make more not good Holmes adaptations. Like, there's so much pressure on them to be highbrow. Yeah, no more gritty so, Holmes adaptations. Let's do some like yeah. sword Let's fighting do some on ones top where of he, trains. Like, Dracula. I think there's a lot of space for some of that. Let's like bring back some pulp Holmes mm-hmm. crossovers with weird things. And see yes, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Join us in two weeks for our narration of the short story, The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle, and a special thanks to our narrator, Dan Height. You can send your thoughts to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at improbablepod. Our website, howeverimprobablepodcast.com, has got transcripts, the research behind the episode, and suggestions for further reading. If you enjoyed the show and can spare a moment, please rate and review. However Improbable is created by Marissa Mercurio and Sarah Culp. With apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours. It's hard for you to swallow that one today. <laughs> yeah. Apologies, but not apologies, because you're being racist yeah. again. Once more. Once more.